Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. Why don't you all stand with us, and we are going to get off with some singing. Good morning. You staying warm? (laughs) Not not much response there. All right. 
So uh, just a few announcements. Uh, Travis is at the youth winter camp t this weekend, so there is no youth group tonight. Um, they're probably not staying real warm either. We'll see. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to have um, a fellowship lunch. It'll be right after service. Um, want everybody to, to join us for fellowship and food. Uh, there will be an informational meeting right after we eat. Uh, so please come and be there. We're going to discuss a couple of things. Um, one is related to a change in the statement of faith at the the national level of the um, the free church, the EV free church. So we're um, looking at that. Um, the district has to make a vote. We want um, congregation input into that vote. So we'll be uh, talking about that, and we'll also be talking about um, possible, potential, futuristic plans for maybe some expanded parking having to do with the, uh, the school that's going to be built next to us. So um, we say in information will be given at the, at the meeting, uh, so we'd like to see everybody there to get that information. Somewhere down the line, probably in about a month, we'll have um, another meeting to vote um, on the statement of faith and um, uh, issues regarding to you know what what the congregation wants us to pursue with the parking issues. So uh, hope to see you there. And then also this this week, uh, the family night or the family prayer night is Tuesday on the twenty third, and that starts at five thirty out in the uh, the foyer there. So hope to see everybody there. All right. stand with us as we continue. Fun little bit of history. This is one of the oldest songs, oldest hymns that we have. Oh, creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and give us sing. Oh, praise Him. Silver moon with soft 
Uh, Father, that we would trust you in every moment of our life and every moment of our day, that we would recognize who you are and therefore who we are in the midst of all circumstances. Pray this morning, Lord, as we uh, come before you and we hear your word, Lord, that you would speak into each of our lives and that you would bring to bear the truth of your word on each heart that's here. We give you the praise and glory for all you're doing, Lord, and ask that you uh, take all the credit for what you accomplish here today. Help us to be your church every day, not just on Sundays. In your name, amen. Young people, you are dismissed to the nursery, and I just wanted to take a second and let you guys know I'm super excited to have Alan preach, and I actually asked him to cover this topic today uh, because of his skill set in and his uh, knowledge in covenant. And as we've been meeting and talking through this stuff, I felt like uh, he was the best option we had. And so, Alan, thanks for, for jumping in and taking this for me, and I look forward to hearing what God's doing. Thank you, Shane. Hopefully, when we're done, you'll still say the same thing. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to be up here and to do this because I always get way more out of it than, than anybody else, um, which is a huge blessing in being able to, to present the Word of God. And so uh, as we do that today, I do that with great joy uh, and anticipation to see how this actually all plays out. Um, our text we'll begin with this morning is in Mark chapter 15. You may recall a couple of weeks ago we looked at this text, and uh, at that time Shane had entitled the message, Jesus' death was unlike any other. And so this morning what we want to do is another look at how Jesus' death is unlike any other. So let's read this text, uh, Mark 15, beginning in verse 33, and then we will go from there. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Uh, and as we see this text, we are told many things that are taking place, that are visible to those that are present, and they're visible to us by means of the Word. But what we want to look at a little bit this morning is not just what was seen, but what is unseen. 
Uh, many people came to this event knowing things about Jesus or making assumptions about Jesus. And what we want to look at is some of the things that were unknown to many of those people. Shane brought out a couple weeks ago that in light of all of the things taking place, uh, the supernatural aspects of the darkness, uh, Mark doesn't mention it, but other writers of the New Testament mention an earthquake or maybe more than one happening. Uh, of all these things, the only response immediately that we're told of is by this Roman centurion who was a Gentile, not a follower of Christ, not a Jew, not associated with Judaism in any way. And he recognizes that something amazing is happening here. What we want to start out with is... Uh, point number one I have, Jesus is the promised one. Some of the people should have known that and didn't recognize it or refused to recognize it, depending on how you see their response in other places. But when we see promise in the scripture, promise is associated with the word covenant. Now, we don't often use the word covenant in our language. There's a few things that we associate covenant with. Um, marriage is often referred to as a covenant, even though sometimes how marriage plays out isn't covenant at all. Sad to say. Um, but to help us out a little bit, uh, I did some research, did some reading, uh, and I have some people to uh, be grateful to, to reinforce some of these things I'm saying. But Dr. O. Palmer Robert, Robertson, in his work entitled The Christ of the Covenants, gives this definition of covenant. And this is obviously the biblical definition of covenant, even though you can see elements of it in marriage. Covenant is a bond in blood Sovereignly administered. Simple, straightforward definition. Now we look at that and go, okay, so how does that work out? Well, a bond is a relationship. A covenant binds people to people, or in particular in Scripture, binds God to his people. The blood signifies it's a matter of life and death. And that's the element you see often in marriage vows. We join people together till death do us part. And again, sad to say, often that's not how it plays out. In Scripture, a covenant is sovereignly administered. It is from God to man. And... Throughout Scripture, and we're going to see some of this as we go along, God has revealed himself as sovereign. If God is not sovereign, in the famous and well-known words of Dr. R.C. Sproul, if God is not sovereign, he's not God. And too often, we recreate a God that's not sovereign because we want to be sovereign. And we'll see in a little bit, that's what happened with Adam and Eve. 
But covenants often are laid out in Scripture with a blessing and a curse. A blessing for obedience, a curse for disobedience. We see that in the Old Covenant. We see that in various covenants in the Old Testament. We see that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and in his interaction with the religious people of his day who rejected his teaching and his person, and he pronounced a woe to them, and in that case, woe is a curse. We're most familiar in Scripture with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, of course, was instituted with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, and it was reiterated again by Moses as the people were about to enter the promised land, which was part of the promise of that covenant, as well as others we'll see in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The New Covenant is prophesied, foretold, In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, most of you are familiar with that text. You've heard it before. If you want to see that, please take a look at that um, because it's amazing that here's several hundred years before it actually comes out in the full forefront of time. It's foretold very specifically. Also, of course, we see the institution by Jesus of the new covenant, which we celebrated last week in the Lord's Supper, which is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and of course, the text we often use for Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, where Jesus says, you know, this bread represents my body, this cup represents my blood. And we'll see how that plays out and the significance of that here in a little bit. But the interesting thing is when you examine the covenants of Scripture, they can only be fulfilled by God. And the difficulty with the the old covenant for the people of Israel, which we'll see here in a little bit also, was the fact that they didn't understand that. And they began to change the perspective of the Old Covenant to, I have to do all these things. I have to fulfill this covenant. I have to be all of these things in order for this thing to work. And of course, it plays off of what took place with Adam and Eve, as we'll see also. But a covenant is not a contract. Unfortunately, a lot of modern contemporary uh, commentators on Scripture will equate a covenant with a contract. With a contract, you have two relatively equal parties, human parties coming together. With contracts, there's typically a negotiation period and you figure out who's going to do what, how it's going to work. And then when it's all agreeable, you sign. But even after signing a contract, you know that there's ways to get out of them. (laughs) And there's people that specialize in enabling you to get out of those contracts. 
And of course, as we know, with marriage again, oftentimes we just get out of it because, well, I just don't want to like this person anymore, so I don't need to go somewhere else. With God, a covenant is not optional. Again, it's from him to his people. He says, this is the way it's going to be, and if it isn't this way, then you're not going to be. I mean, it's really a life and death thing. The interesting thing, too, is the way the covenants play out, there's this cycle of the focus is on one person or one family, and then that extends to their you know, generations of their family, the kids, the grandkids, so on, down for a ways, and then, again, there'll be a focus on a person and or a family, and then that'll expand into more, and we see that throughout the covenants. Theologians look at the scriptures by means of three primary covenants. And we're going to look at some of those today and touch on some of those. We're not going to be able to cover everything in depth. Uh, Lord willing, he may provide an opportunity. We could have a, a special class or whatever if there's that kind of interest to look at these things more in depth. But the, the covenant, which we've mentioned here before, in fact, I mentioned it last time that I preached here, was the, it's called the covenant of redemption. You don't see that name that way in the text of Scripture, but you see it played out in how God interacts with people. Uh, where it's alluded to uh, without the names is uh, Titus chapter 1 talks about God promising salvation before time began. The other place we see it is in Ephesians chapter 1, where we are told that those who are in Christ were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So it isn't just something that came along by the way. It is something that was instituted by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before time began, is put into play within time, and continues after time. I mean, after we're done with what we understand of this life, on the last day, which is the eternal day, will be the culmination of that covenant of redemption where people are fully and finally free from their sin, from all unrighteousness, as John talks about in 1 John 1.9. The other covenant that is debated, and some people wrestle with whether it was really a covenant or not, uh, is referred to as the covenant of works or the covenant in Eden or the Edenic covenant or the covenant with Adam. Uh, Adam, in Hebrew, you may know, simply means man. So when Adam comes on the scene, he's referred to in the Hebrew text simply as man, and then that becomes his name, and that's who we associate you know, that name with is the person, Adam, whose wife God created for him to be his helper was Eve. Uh, in the New Testament, we see this interplay between the first Adam, Adam and Eve, 
and the last Adam, which is Christ, the promised one. This covenant was specifically, by most theologians, isolated to this period of time when Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had a relationship with God. They were innocent. They had not committed any sin. But they had a job to do to care for the garden, to do uh, part of Adam's job, of course, was to name the animals which he went through. But there was a specific prohibition, a specific command to not eat of a certain tree, which, of course, we know they became tempted by the serpent, which was the embodiment of Satan, to look at this tree more closely and say, oh, yeah, this looks like a pretty good deal. We need this. Because, as Satan convinced them, they could be like God. They could be better than they were. That was basically the argument Satan used, is if you do this, you'll be better than you are now. And the reason God doesn't want to give it to you is he, he's not really being fair. So they bought the argument, of course, and here we are today. Um, after that, because God had said, if you eat of this tree, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then, of course, they did eat of it. They didn't die. But what God was implementing, what God was revealing about himself was his graciousness, his mercy. And he made a provision for them and continued to do so, and that's what we want to take a look at. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and take a look at what transpires after Adam and Eve eat of this tree. God goes through this whole process. We're not going to look at all of that, but specifically uh, in verse 15, it's interesting that God is actually addressing the serpent. But he says specifically to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's repercussions for what Adam and Eve did. And of course, we know if you read on, the woman is given this unnecessary or over-the-top burden of having pain in bearing children. Adam is going to have pain in getting produce from the ground. There's going to be interruptions like weeds and drought and other issues, and he's going to have to work harder and sweat, and ultimately he's going to return to the ground from which the Lord had come, come along and created him. So there's repercussions. But in this graciousness, God is saying, I will provide for you. The other thing, of course, we know God did for Adam and Eve was to replace their temporary covering um, with a more permanent covering, which required death. 
And one of the commentators suggested that the Lord potentially killed whatever animal it was that he got the skins from in front of them so they could see what death was and what the reaction was, what the outcome was before he gave them the skins to cover their nakedness for which they had become ashamed because of their sin. A little further on in Genesis chapter 12, we see another focus of God's attention to a particular person. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see five times here where God makes this promise to Abraham. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Emphasizing it's an activity of God for which not only is Abraham a recipient, but God expands it ultimately to all the families of the earth. A little further on, Genesis chapter 15, we have with Abraham again, God coming to Abraham at a specific point. And uh, we're taking a look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we have this interchange between Abram and God, and Abram says, you promised me that I'd be a great nation. You promised me I'd be all this stuff, but I have no children. So how's this going to happen? God says, well, it's not going to happen by this adoptive process. This guy that's in your household, he's not the one. It'll be your own son, literally from your own body, will be the one. And if you can number the stars, that's how great your offspring will be, how great this blessing will spread. Well, Abram believed God. And in Scripture, when we see the word believe, 
the same root word for believe is the same root word for faith. And as we know from Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, 10, faith comes from God. It's a gift that He gives. Not an obligation on God's part to give anyone faith. The faith that anyone has, God gives. And in this case, God made a promise, a promise of offspring to Abram, and Abram believed him, and God accounted that belief, that faith, as righteousness. And we're going to see more on that accounting as we go along, because this verse 6 of Genesis 15 is quoted several times throughout Scripture to remind us of where faith is and what the source is. But the other thing we see with this covenant with Abram from chapter 12 as well as here is that it involves more than just Abram himself, more in this case than just Abram's immediate family of which he only has a wife, has no kids. God says it's going to involve people from all over the world, people from every family on the earth. So it, it broadens very quickly this covenant. You want to see that closer in Isaiah chapter 42, many generations after God's encounter with Abram, Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel who are uh, on the verge of captivity. They've pretty much given up on what God has been doing. And Isaiah reminds them in chapter 42, verse 1 Behold, Isaiah is quoting the Lord, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This text is quoted by Matthew in chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. We're not going to look at it, but the interesting thing is in the New Testament, Matthew records the word nations as Gentiles. The emphasis being that God's activity with people is not exclusive to Israel. It's not exclusive to the Jews. And again, unfortunately, the Jews didn't always get that. And in the case of Jesus, in sending him to the cross, they accused him of claiming to be the king of the Jews. And yet they discredited that. They wouldn't believe that. They wouldn't accept that. And the interesting thing, as we'll see as we go along, Jesus was not just the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the universe. And his activity on the cross wasn't just to benefit the Jews. It was to benefit people of all walks of life all across time. And to see a foreshadowing of that, turn a few pages over 
to Isaiah chapter 49. Verses 5 through 6, and now the Lord says, He who formed me, referring to Jesus, from the womb to be his servant and to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. This Lord, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and my salvation, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this covenant that God has made with this servant, which is Jesus the Christ, the Christ referring to this honoring that's mentioned in this text, the appointed one, the anointed one, the specific one, the promised one. He makes this play on the word light. It's not heavy enough. It's not a big enough deal for you just to save Israel. So I'm going to provide for you to save people from all the nations. And my salvation is going to expand to all the earth. Again, a covenant God's declaring of graciousness to people of all the earth, even people that don't know about his covenant with Israel, don't know about his relationship to those specific people he chose. And as we see how this, these declarations come out, we see evidence in Scripture very particularly of God's revelation of himself and his activity of, of progressing. There are those in theological circles who like to see God working one way at one period of time and then stopping that activity and moving to operating a different way for a different period of time, stopping that activity and moving onwards. And as we see, there's a continuation of this idea of God covenanting himself to his people of all walks of life, of all nations, to bring about salvation for his glory. So Jesus, hanging on the cross, is the promised one, and the people around there, they don't all recognize that. They don't all see that. Within this covenant of grace, we do see God's activity. Um, we've seen it with Abraham. God also had a covenant with Noah, which was not a major covenant in terms of the amount of people immediately that it affected. Obviously, obviously it was with Noah and his family. But we see with that covenant a particular sign of the rainbow which we still see to this day, God reminding that he's not going to destroy the earth in the same way. With Abraham, there's a sign. The sign becomes 
circumcision, which is a cutting. And oftentimes when a covenant is made, the words used in Scripture refer to God cutting a covenant. We, of course, have the Old Covenant with Moses, and the sign of the Old Covenant included circumcision, but it also was instituted with the Passover. And the Passover was a regular celebration as a sign of what God had already done and the carrying out of the obedience to the law demonstrated that the people were worshiping God, honoring God by obeying his commandments because of what he had already done, not because of what it would make them. And again, they tripped up on that. As you see with the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they said, hey, we are the guys. We follow Moses. We do the right stuff. So you do it our way, and you're all good. But that wasn't the point at all. And we'll see that a little bit more. God also made a covenant with David. As you know, David wanted to build a house for God. At this point in time, several years after the people had entered the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant, the worship place of God, was still in a tent. And David said, I'd like to do this. And then God said, well, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to have your son do that. But David, I'm going to build for you a house. I'm promising you, I'm covenanting with you that you will always have a man on the throne. And David believed that. Solomon came along, built the temple, and so on from there. Uh, some of David's sons were, were honorable kings, and they followed God, believed God, did what God said. Some of them not so much. But they continued on in this covenant thing. And God, of course, had this covenant, the new covenant, which Jesus instituted. We've mentioned that. Um, but involved in these covenants is the idea of sacrifice. And it's interesting, we see sacrifice initially introduced back with Cain and Abel. In early chapters of Genesis, they were the sons of Adam and Eve. Now, we're not told how they knew what to do, but clearly God had given them instruction. And as we look at the various covenants and the various people God covenanted with, there were sacrifices made, animal sacrifices. Of course, the old covenant is the most significant. It's interesting that in the process of describing what was necessary to atone for their sins, whatever they were, great or small, there was this process of bringing certain animals without spot or without blemish, perfect animals, and sacrificing them before God in very particular procedures. And in one of those discussions, descriptions of the procedure, the comment is made by the Lord that if you do not follow this procedure exactly, I will not count that sacrifice to your record. I will account it as if you never made it. If you fail, 
part of that involved the the sacrifice had to be perfect, had to be without spot or blemish, had to be the best, but it had to be done very particularly. It couldn't be done just haphazardly. And as we know, in the case of Aaron's own sons, who were priests along with Aaron, came before God illegally, committed what we would say is kid stuff, you know, just boys messing around kind of stuff, and offered an unauthorized sacrifice of incense before the Lord, and fire came out from the altar and burned them up. And their cousins had to come and carry them out of the camp and bury them. And Moses made it clear to Aaron, God said, look, I'm a holy God. You come before me as I command or else. And so there's this very particular thing that needed to happen. And we see in Jesus, point number two with our outline, is he is the perfect sacrifice. Perfect in Scripture has to do with no spot or blemish, but it also has to do with completion. Jesus is the sacrifice that completes what none of the other sacrifices could do. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 We are told, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The emphasis there being without sin. Jesus had no sin that he had to bring an atonement or a sacrifice for himself. He was perfect. But we also have here the element of Jesus' ministry, which is not only was he the perfect sacrifice, but he was the perfect sacrificer. He's the perfect priest because he'd been tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and yet he didn't give in to the temptation as the first Adam did. A little further on, a few pages in Hebrews chapter 9, Beginning in verse 11, we are told, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus' sacrifice is perfect in sinlessness, and it's perfect in completion. Jesus was the perfect priest. He brings about this eternal work, 
which we had alluded to in this covenant of redemption, he brings about this means of securing this eternal redemption, and he did it by his own blood. And so as he's dying on the cross, he's accomplishing a greater purpose than just satisfying the wrath of the particular high priests and elders and scribes who hated him and wanted him dead. He was also satisfying the wrath of God and accomplishing an eternal redemption, which could be not could not be accomplished in any other way. We can see that also in Second Corinthians chapter five. Beginning in verse seventeen, Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, that is God, made him who is Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that is Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus had never committed a sin beyond our comprehension in a certain sense because all we've ever known is an existence of sin. All of our interactions, all of our greatest motives, the Old Testament tells us all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the ultimate sense. But Jesus, who knew no sin, he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, God made him sin. And he didn't just make him one person's sin or a few people's sin. He put on Christ all of the sin of all of God's people of all time from Adam and Eve until the last day for Jesus to pay the penalty for. The amazing thing that's happening in Jesus' death is Jesus is fulfilling all of the penalties of the Old Covenant and paying for all of those sins for God's people throughout that whole period as well as before that, as we're told in other texts, between Noah and Adam and Moses, there was a lot of sin. But we're not told about all those specific things. We're told about the specific sins that violate God's commandments given in the Old Covenant. Jesus atones for all of those sins as the perfect sacrifice, the complete sacrifice that none of those animals do. 
But the other thing he's doing simultaneously is what he told the disciples he was doing in instituting the new covenant in his blood, which he had told them about just hours before he's hanging on the cross, probably less than 12 hours since the time he said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins for many. So simultaneously, as he's dying, he's accomplishing two covenantal, and actually, ultimately, there is a plethora of covenants, because if you look at all the covenants that God made with all of these different individuals, Christ fulfills them all. In the covenant with Noah, we're told in Colossians that Jesus is the one that keeps everything together that makes our world run. Not only did he participate in creation as the agent, but he's the one that holds it together. He's the glue that the scientists keep looking for to say, why does this mean what it does, and how does it work like it does? Well, Paul tells the Colossian church that, which tells us that, that that's how it works. In the covenant with Abraham, we didn't look at the text, but in the rest of Genesis 15, I encourage you to look at it. God has Abraham lay out animals. He cuts them in half, lays them out, and in a vision, Abraham sees these symbols, these signs of God passing between these animals and saying, I covenant myself with you, Abraham, and ultimately with all those people all over the world, that if I don't do this, I will become like these animals. Well, Jesus fulfills that covenant. He becomes the one who says, I'm doing it, and I'm making it work for people all over the world, which is still happening to this day as we heard from Steve Mean last week. Throughout the New Testament, we see this juxtaposition of being in Christ or being in sin. And those who are in sin are condemned to death because they do not believe in Christ. Everyone knows John 3.16 but so many people don't ever read John 3.17 or John 3.18, where it says, of course, in John 3.16, whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in him, will have eternal life. John 3.18 says, whoever doesn't believe in him is condemned already because they have refused to believe in the name of God's one and only Son. There's, a, again, that blessing and that curse. The blessing for faith, for belief, is eternal life. The curse is condemnation, eternal death. Galatians chapter 3 helps us see this. In fact, uh, all of the book of Galatians, if you have a chance encourage you just to start from the beginning and read the whole book in one single setting sometime. 
But uh, this particular text we want to look at in the bulletin, it lists verses, uh, chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 7 through 14. Well, I'm actually going to read through verses 29, which will be on the screen. Um, as I looked at this text more closely, I realized that Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia, says these things much better than I can. So beginning in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I love it when Paul does that. He tells you very specifically what it is he's talking about. It's Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promise that was made to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no, no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And as we saw, it's a promise that God could not break. He said, if I break this promise, I will become like these animals. So why then was the law brought in? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, which is Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in, 
in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. So the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, again, in Christ's death, accomplishes that for everyone who trusts, puts their faith in Christ as the one who can accomplish that like no other. I had a text in John 8 that I wanted to look at, but we're going to bypass that one today for time's sake. But I encourage you to look at John 8 because it's this interplay between Jesus and the religious leaders. And their big claim is, hey, we're the sons of Abraham. We, we follow Abraham and we're disciples of Moses. I mean, they go through this whole rendition and Jesus says, well, if you really were, you'd know who I am and you would honor me. But since you dishonor me, you dishonor the God whom you claim to be your father. In fact, he says there, you're the, of your father, the devil. You're the offspring of Satan, which God mentions to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's going to get crushed. And we sung about it earlier. We crush the enemy under our feet. I didn't get into that text for this morning, but there's a text in the New Testament which says, in, in Romans, Paul says, we as being in Christ, participate in the crushing of the enemy under our feet in our obedience and our adherence by faith to Christ and his work. It's an amazing process that God is working. Jesus is the focus of our faith, of our belief. We don't just believe about him. We don't just believe a bunch of facts and figures and all that. And the people of faith in the scriptures don't just go, oh, yeah, God exists. I believe that. According to James, uh, the demons believe that. So we can qualify to be a demon if we believe things about God. We have to believe God when he makes these promises and commits himself to accomplish what he said he would do. He does, and he's still doing it. The text we looked at in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has given us this message, this appeal to be reconciled to God in Christ. If you have people that you know that are not at that point, that's the message they need to hear. Now, they may or may not respond. That part is in God's hands. Because as we know, God gives faith. God gives the ability for people to believe and to respond appropriately. But the reconciliation that's available has been accomplished in Christ. And people need to hear that message. And God is sending us to preach, to teach, to, you can call it evangelism, or you can call it sharing. The, the name is inconsequential. The message is the same. It's Christ. And it's done. 
Very quickly, I want to look at Jesus as the access to God. I'm not going to look at the whole text of John 14, but you're familiar with that interplay between Jesus and Thomas in particular. Jesus says, I'm going away, and you know where I'm going. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, yeah, you know the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the access to God. And again, that's the message people need to hear. Jesus is the access to God. Going back to the text we started with in Mark, it talks about part of the process of the things happening as Jesus dies is the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And that may or may not seem all that significant. It's interesting, we're not given any reaction of anyone to that happening. We're told it happened, and we're told why it happened in Hebrews. We're not going to go into all that other than clearly it opens the Holy of Holies, which was at that point cordoned off from people. It was only for the high priest to go in there once a year to make atonement for sin, but it opened that up to everyone. The interesting thing about that curtain is I read a couple different accounts. It was either 60 feet or 80 feet high, depending on how you look at the measurements. And it was 30 feet wide. And according to the rabbinical records, it was a hand breadth thick. So we're not talking about like, you know, lacy veil kind of thing or even a curtain like that. We're talking about literally a wall of fabric that splits. Again, another supernatural thing. No person could have done that. But what it does is it opens up to all of God's people access to God. And that's why Jesus, in preparing his disciples for his death and then his going away, commands them to pray in his name because, as he says in John 14, I am the way to God. So when you approach God, you come in my name. That's your access. That I'm the one. And I wanted to look into Revelation, but I encourage you to do that, Revelation 21 and 22, because we see access to God in an eternal state. We see the picture of heaven, and there's no sun or moon or other lights. God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are the light. They are the ones that we will be eternally in their presence, and it's, we're told that we will see God face to face. And John alludes to that in 1 John chapter 3, and he says the love that God has given us is literally out of country, First John chapter 3. It's out of this world. You don't find it anywhere here. This love is an eternal love. It's a permeating love. 
and it's a permanent love. And when we see him, he says, because of this, we will be like him. And that's our objective, that reconciliation to God, which isn't just temporary, like the animal sacrifice, and we go make another one tomorrow or in a few hours. It's permanent. It's forever. And that's the blessing of God covenanting with his people is that he makes it happen. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for that huge blessing of you committing, covenanting yourself, your person, and all of your power and glory to accomplishing salvation for your people, which could not be accomplished in any other way. So we praise you and we thank you for being the recipients of that We pray, too, that you would bless us with a willingness to go and communicate that truth to those that you bring to us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to stand with us as we sing to close?
this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Have a good week. Have a good Valentine's Day. See you next week.